Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Okay, check this idea out. Changing our relationship with food is not about willpower. It's about understanding the brain and applying neuroscience principles to unwind negative habits. Now, this is one of the paradigm shifting ideas from today's guest, Dr. Judd Brewer, author of the new book, The Hunger Habit. And Dr. Judd is a psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and professor at Brown University School of Public Health. He studies the neural mechanisms of mindfulness and has translated his research into programs to treat addiction. He founded Mind Sciences, now known as Dr. Judd, an app focused on digital therapeutic treatment for anxiety, overeating, and smoking. In our conversation, Judd provides fascinating insight into the nature of habit development and neural reward systems. We discuss the nature of emotional eating and why we, quote unquote, eat our feelings. Judd breaks apart homeostatic from hedonic hunger and how you can delineate between hunger as a biological need from a psychological craving. We probe the role the food industry plays to hijack our biology and contribute to the formation of maladaptive habits and hedonic hunger. Judd tears down the willpower myth. We excavate habit change, the myths of mindful eating, and the role of kindness in reframing our relationship with food. Okay, but before we dive in, I am so grateful to those of you who write reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a positive one, to receive your free all access for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. It makes such a huge difference. Okay, this conversation is incredibly useful for anyone looking to change maladaptive habits, including binge and unconscious eating. So without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Judd Brewer. Dr. Judd Brewer, great to be with you. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so congratulations are in order uh, for your new book, The Hunger Habit. Uh, I know that gestation period is long and difficult, so well done. <laughs> You've been, you're been brewing up another microbrew in your brew house or however you think about it, so <laughs> Thank you. well done. Um, yeah, so I look forward to uh, plumbing the depths of habit creation and emotional eating and how we can apply many of these neuroscience principles to overcome and I suppose change our negative relationships with food. But, you know, given that this book really does build atop the shoulders of much of your prior work, uh, I was hoping that just to lay some compost, if you will, for the conversation, um, you could uh, give us a little survey of your personal and professional forays into the world of mindfulness and, and how you came to kind of start to apply that to the topic of food habits. 
Sure. Well, it was certainly a long and winding road, so I won't take you down that entire road, but maybe <laughs> we'll hit some some highlights and some viewpoints along the way. Okay. You know, first, this is a very unexpected journey for me. And I think often where we, when we follow the unexpected, we are rewarded, you know, so much more than if we just follow the narrow and beaten path. So it, when I started medical school, I was pretty stressed out and I started meditating on my first day of medical school. And was just doing it as a, you know, stress reduction measure. And I found that, you know, boring medical school lectures, I could, you know, pay attention to my breath. And I felt like I was getting something useful <laughs> done, <laughs> ironically, because in the Western mindset of doing, you know, doing more practice. And long story short, <laughs> when I, you know, I spent about eight years learning, starting to learn to practice during my MD, PhD program. And, you know, you, you do your these programs where they split it up. You do a couple of years of medical school and then you do your PhD for long enough. So you forget everything you've learned in medical school. <laughs> and then, exactly. yeah. And then you have to go back on the wards and are expected to pick up with the other third years, you know, who've just come right out of second year. And so I did my psychiatry resident or my psychiatry rotation as my first rotation you know, foray back into the hospital because I'd, I'd forgotten how to interview patients. And I was like, wow, this is fun. And, you know, kind of blew it off. Never thought I would end up becoming a psychiatrist. Long story short, I'm a psychiatrist. And <laughs> in, in residency, I'd been doing all this molecular biology research. And I really made this conscious decision where I really loved what I'd been learning about the mind and felt like there was an opportunity to do mindfulness research. This is back in the early aughts and very, very little research had been done at the time. And I remember somebody telling me I was going to kill my career. Literally, he said this, a fellow resident. And uh, he said, I was going to kill my career if I did this stuff, implying, you know, the candles and unicorns and all this stuff around mindfulness. And I remember thinking, well, I'd rather kill my career doing something that I'm passionate about than succeed, you know, doing the normal stuff. And so that kind of set off the trajectory of like taking the the cold plunge <laughs> into, <laughs> yeah. into doing mindfulness research and, and it kind of built from there. Yeah. Okay. So I wonder if you just could give us a, a kind of a working definition for a mindfulness practice, because I, I think it'll come in useful as we start to kind of pull apart um, the hunger habit. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I think of mindfulness as a large circle. And then within that, a smaller, think of a Venn diagram where there's a smaller circle that fits entirely within the larger circle. And I think of that as meditation. And I use that as a, as a framework to start because often we think, oh, mindfulness is about meditation. And really, if we, there are many different very many different definitions of mindfulness. And I think I like to keep things very pragmatic. So it's really about two elements. Uh, one is awareness and one is this attitude of curiosity, being curious. In, in Zen, they talk mm -hmm. about this don't know mind or beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. And here, you know, in, in Western mindset, a lot of people have heard of John Kabat-Zinn who developed the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. He talks about non-judgment as an attitudinal quality. That's really, you know, that's a, a, a positive framing of non-judgment is curiosity when we're not, you know, we're not going in with, with preconceived notions. And so we can think of, you know, being aware in a curious way when we're sitting meditating, but we can also think of this 
is being mindful or curiously aware anytime when we're going through our daily life. Hmm. Yeah, in the book, uh, since you bring up John Kabat-Zinn, you give um, an example of the the raisin experiment, uh, I believe, or uh, I'm not sure that's the right uh, moniker for it, but um, yeah, we can maybe poke at that at, at some point because I I'd heard about it, but I'd never heard it described in such colorful detail. So it was a, <laughs> <laughs> I really I really enjoyed that that bit. Um, there also just seems to be this element of, of metacognition um, related to, to mindfulness, this ability to observe and witness one's thoughts and feelings without getting swept up in them or identifying with them. And I think as we um, come to examine the nature of habits and how we might reframe or, or recreate new habits, it seems like this concept uh, kind of punctuates a lot of your suggestions here. It does. And so I think one way to think of this is you know, in physics, they had this term that called the observer effect. And they coined this when they were trying to measure the mass of electrons. And the only way they could do that was by inferring their mass based on their momentum. And they could measure momentum by hitting electrons with photons. And so the idea was that by hitting an electron with a photon, you actually had to take into account that interaction. And they call this the observer effect. And basically it means by observing, you're affecting the results. So the only way they could observe was by hitting an electron with a photon and they were affecting the results. So they had to take that into account. In psychology, they call this the Hawthorne effect by observing. So imagine doing an experiment, like you know, you're asked to go and be a participant in a psychology study and they say, oh, you know, move, move this pencil across the desk this way. And if they stand over your shoulder and watch you with a, you know, with a notepad or something, you might do it slightly differently than if they were outside of the room. And so, you know, they actually found this, I think it was based on a uh, suburb of Chicago where they were doing some experiments in a lighting factory. And by observing the workers, they were, you know, they were seeing results that ended up being uh, affected by the observations. And I, I say all of this because we can use this knowledge to see how we interact with ourselves. So often we are identified with our thoughts and our emotions and even our body sensations. We think, oh, that's just, that's who I am. And that identify that identification actually colors our relationship, not only with ourselves, but with the world. And so we're going to interact with the world and we're going to interact with ourselves in a different way when we're identified with a certain thought, then when we can be curious and just observe it as a thought. And so I think of it this way, you know, the act of, of observing affects the results and that, you know, that can kind of be a, a kind of a, um, you know, a precursor for how we can actually leverage the strength of our brains to change, you know, to change habits. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I think as we kind of cultivate some of these practices as well, they do help to create kind of that space in the classic Viktor Frankl sort of way between stimulus and response, mm-hmm. um, you know, such that we have a greater ability, you know, to witness thoughts and feelings as passing phenomena arising in society moment to moment and not identify with them. And, you know, as we begin to, attack some of these entrenched maladaptive habits 
that can come in pretty handy. So let's just dive right into the, I suppose, the neurobiology of habits. I mean, can you describe the various neural machinations at play in respect to habit development and, you know, how we seem to become very entrenched in, in some of these kind of maladaptive um, kind of settled practices, I guess. Yeah. Well, I would, I'll start by saying probably 95% of habits that we have are actually helpful. And so often we talk about habits in terms of getting rid of unhelpful ones, but I just want to give a nod to our, our wonderful brains <laughs> that are set <laughs> yeah. up to help us survive every day and actually to help us free up space to be able to learn new things every day. So imagine if we had mm. to, you know, if we didn't know how to walk or put on our clothes or make coffee, you know, we'd be exhausted by the time we even made it to breakfast. And so setting up habits helps us do things that are helpful generally so that we can open up that space to learn new things every day. So just a, just a shout out to our wonderful brains. <laughs> Before we put it on trial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the way that it works in the systems, uh, there's a well-known a neural pathway or a circuitry that's described as um, the Roy-based learning system or the reinforcement learning system. It involves brain regions like the ventral tegmental area, the nucleus accumbens, you know, things like that. Even the you know prefrontal cortex that um, we f form memories, you know, involving the hippocampus. And then there's a part of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex um, that helps kind of arrange or it sets up what I think of as a reward hierarchy of how, you know, which, which behaviors we pick over others so that we can make decisions quickly every day. And the, it's a, it's a pretty simple process. It has three key elements to set up any habit, a trigger, a behavior, and from a neuroscience standpoint, a reward. And so, you know, imagine our ancient ancestors uh, foraging for food. When they found some food, there's the trigger they ate the food, there's the behavior, and then their stomach would send this dopamine signal to their brain that basically said, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it's really set up for us to learn, you know, basically context-dependent memory so we can learn where to find food mm -hmm. again. And the same is true for danger, right? We can learn where food is, we can learn where danger is, we can go to the former, we can avoid the latter. And these processes in modern day are called positive and negative reinforcement because they are the very foundational habit formation process and, you know, couched under the term of reinforcement learning in general. So let's say there's a cue or a trigger that is not necessarily a, a biological imperative, but an emotional state. Um, how can that then start this kind of domino effect that could lead to, let's say, emotional eating or eating our feelings? Yeah, it's a really good question. So here, you know, think of it as the general the general categories are positive and negative reinforcement. So positive reinforcement means if there's something pleasant, we learn to do it again. Negative reinforcement basically means if so, there's something unpleasant, we learn to avoid it in the future. So with, um, let's say we go to our first birthday party when we're five and we 
you know, we start eating cake or the first time we've had ice cream or something like that, our brain says, wow, this is really good. This, <laughs> this combination and this concentration of sugar, salt, and fat is amazing. It's actually called a bliss point where you can actually dial that in. And so we learn, oh, ice cream is good or cake is good or whatever our favorite food is, is good. And then when we're, uh, let's say that we're frustrated or anxious or sad or lonely or bored, all of those tend to fall in under the category of negative emotions. They don't feel good. So our brain says, hey, this doesn't feel good. And then it says, remember that ice cream? Ice cream tastes pretty good. So if I eat ice cream, I can make the unpleasant feeling of boredom go away because I'm eating something pleasant. So this, th this is the negative reinforcement process, meaning let's say we're bored or we're sad and there's the trigger, we eat the ice cream, there's the behavior, and then we learn to numb ourselves out or avoid that unpleasant feeling of boredom or sadness. And then that gets reinforced to the point where, you know, these things are called like stress eating or, you know, comfort eating or emotional eating. And in fact, this is so common now that scientists have had to come up with an actual term that's called hedonic hunger. And mm. it's a term because it's not actual hunger. So they just had to name it that to characterize what this was, but it's actually eating in the absence of hunger <laughs> based <laughs> on an emotion as compared to homeostatic hunger or physiologic hunger, which is the actual survival mechanism. Mm, yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose this reward that we get is quite ephemeral, right? So yes. we might get that, I think you call it a spritz of dopamine, which I, I like that um, vocabulary there. And, um, but of course, you know, before you can, you know, close the box up, you know, the, this dopamine hit ha has worn off, right? And so mm -hmm. then you're left with yourself again, right? So that those mm -hmm. negative emotions reemerge. So there you are once again, you know, lonely or sad, but through repetition, these neural pathways in the brain have become so strong and efficient that then you just go back to that same subconscious or bottom up behavior of just eating another pint of ice cream or something yeah. Yeah. equally maladaptive. Is, is that a fair understanding? <laughs> Absolutely. And there are a couple of elements to highlight there. One is the more quickly we learn to find that quick fix, the more intolerant we become of negative emotions. And so mm. if we mm. can, you know, if our, if, if we learn to scroll on social media or check our email, or run to the refrigerator, the more we do that, the, the harder it is to actually sit in discomfort. And so, so many people have lost this ability. It's called distress tolerance, right? They're, they're, they have mm -hmm. a very low tolerance for distress because these things are at their fingertips. Yeah. And, and I suppose the sort of overabundance of kind of this surfeit of, of cheap calories, it doesn't make things any easier. Um, well, in that especially regard. when they have a half-life of about a thousand years, you know, so you could always have something <laughs> in true. your desk yeah. drawer that's going to be edible. Well, at least not rotten. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, maybe pull on that thread for a tiny bit because, you know, certainly our, our food industry 
you know, I mean, really industry, any industry that becomes commodified under the general aegis of capitalism sort of falls under you know, the same trend, I suppose. But, you know, how the food industry kind of insidiously works to entrench these habits kind of beyond their normal means. Yes. And, you know, again, it's, it's, if you look back at, at the conditions that uh, were laid down to make, make this possible for the food industry, it's not like somebody woke up one morning and said, I want to make stuff that is very addictive and terrible for people so that we have an obesity epidemic go. You know, mm-hmm. it starts with like a corn subsidy and then makes corn, high fructose corn syrup very cheap. And then suddenly people are looking for profit and they say, well, I can make cheap stuff. And, uh, you know, soda, oh, that's dirt cheap. And we, you know, we get high margins on that. Let's sell that. And how can we outcompete the other people? And so, you know, it's just people getting stuck in a capitalistic <laughs> system. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the people, it's the systems yeah. often. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to highlight that. And, you know, it's unfortunate when somebody's like, well, I got to go make a buck. And then here are the industries that are hiring, you know, they kind of get stuck in the system themselves. Yeah. But, but you mentioned the, the bliss point. So there are very intentional efforts to kind of engineer around that bliss point. Is that mm. correct? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at just an example, RJ Reynolds, you know, tobacco company, I don't remember when they first acquired a food company called Nabisco, but if you look at the ticker tape, mm. I think it's RJRNAB, RJRNAB. So yeah. it's like, you know, when they started getting in trouble in the eighties, uh, when the gig was up around tobacco, uh, you know, they had to diversify their portfolio and they're like, we have a bunch of engineers that can engineer things that go in, you know, that get ingested. Uh, let's start doing this with food like objects, you know, and to the point where, you know, my favorite uh, peer reviewed journal, The Onion, <laughs> they, they, they have a uh, headline that says Dorito cel- Doritos celebrates its one millionth ingredient, you know, just kind of highlighting or poking fun at, at how highly engineered these things are. Yeah, well, reality seems to have put the onion out of business these days. I know, um, it's unfortunate. I love the onion. Yeah, I loved the onion. It was my, and it was free, and it was during kind of my college years, and so, uh, but it's uh, it's hard to kind of hyperbolize on top of hyperbole at this juncture. <laughs> um, um, so, just to kind of hover back over, um, you know, why we eat. So at the beginning of the book, um, you describe, I guess I I might call like a satori around why people are eating because you yourself have never, I don't think struggled with weight management. Um, but you were working with certainly with a lot of people in groups that had this as a, as a kind of primary infirmity. So what was the kind of the light bulb moment that went off for you? that people are really eating not because of a biological need, but more because of a psychological desire, I'd call it. Yeah. So one of the light bulb moments that I had was around, I I was in my clinics, I had set up a group medical visit for people with binge eating disorder. And so I was working with, it happened to be all women at the time, but was working with a group of women and I felt like I was missing something when we first started this group. And I was like, I'm losing something in translation here. 
And I had this assumption that people knew, could tell when they were hungry. Let's put it that way. And one woman at one point said, oh, I'm, you know, I have an urge and I eat. And my assumption was, well, that meant she was hungry. And I, but I stopped and I said, wait a minute. Well, is it because you're hungry? And she, she looked at me like I was crazy. She's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I just have an urge and I eat. And then everybody in the group just was chiming in. It was like, everybody's like, oh, finally he understands. And the idea there is when we start to mix these, these wires in our brains between homeostatic and hedonic hunger, then it's really hard to tell the difference with you know, what signal is what. And that was actually one of the first places that I started uh, to explore, like how can we rewire the brain, but use the brain's natural reward learning circuitry to re rewire itself. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you um, Because you're walking this tightrope between kind of modern neuroscience and in this case, relationships with food and mindfulness and Buddhism and kind of that pedigree. I think you refer here to the hungry ghost. Um, mm -hmm. What is the hungry ghost? Yeah, there's a concept in Buddhism and it may be in other traditions as well, but I learned it from a, a Buddhist context. So you can picture a, a ghost with a pretty small mouth or even a normal sized mouth, but a long, narrow esophagus and a huge stomach. And so if you look at it in terms of uh, being able to get enough food in the belly to make it satisfied, that ghost is set up for failure. There's no way it's going to be able to fill its belly because with that esophagus, it, it prevents food getting in there enough and quickly enough that it can fill it up. And so they call this the hungry ghost because it's this, you know, and you could think of it as the hedonic treadmill where we keep trying to shove more food into our mouths to fill ourselves up. And it only makes that phenomenon, makes us more hungry, more and more hungry. And so I think it's a beautiful description of what we, you know, what we experience when we're constantly trying to soothe our, you know, soothe our uh, moods with food. Yeah. And I, you know, it speaks to this, to the core of suffering, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, this notion of Trishna or thirst, um, uh, that seems to underwrite this idea that like, if only and only if, you know, I can get that glittering thing that's out there, well, then I'll be sated or, or satisfied. Um, and then of course, as soon as we get it, there's another glittering object that appears right on the horizon. And, you know, we've forgotten about the thing that we have and we, now we're off to chase, you know, you know, bridge the next cat, that, that chasm to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And of course, then that's where the treadmill <laughs> comes into play. Right. And so this, this is a phenomenon that happens obviously inclusive of food, but also with almost any, uh, object that, that, appears to assuage our discontents or, or perceived efficiencies, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, we're, it's like we're being sold salt water as a thirst quencher. <laughs> yeah, without the uh, desalination yes. plant uh, yes. handy. Um, okay, so 
And let's, it's fair to say that this idea isn't, or, or this phenomenon is really very, very prevalent. I mean, this isn't just codified to like a small niche group of people. You know, we look at, um, you know, society, I think, you know, there's like 75 or 80% of us are overweight or have issues with weight management in the United States. Um, I think the, the rates of obesity are maybe 44% um, at this juncture. And, you know, this, uh, obviously we have an absolutely crazy, unrealistic sort of Instagram fed version of what beauty is that, yes. that contributes to this pathology. But then there's also like separating that with the actual underlying kind of physical, you know, pathology that, you know, we are, this is contributing to this um, kind of what might be initially an emotional issue is actually contributing to a lot of physiological suffering. It is. And I think there are several contributing factors here. So one is that we have these societal norms that somebody set up and now we're perpetuating that, you know, we're, we've already been good at comparing ourselves to other people and to ourselves. And then you set up social media, which is like the perfect mirror where we can suddenly compare ourselves, not just to the people around us, but to everybody in the world. <laughs> so it's a terrible mechanism for uh, guilt and shame and self-judgment, right? So that's not helpful. And we've, you know, tons of studies, I won't go into them, showing, especially with teens, that this is extremely problematic for self-esteem. So we've got that. And then we've got, you know, that's on top of the already established societal norms about what, what we should look like and all of the underlying judgments around fat people, for example, you know, lazy, this and that, that are, that are in there as, and then these folks get microaggressed all the time where people are, you know, um, they're just feeling this judgment, whether it's in the workplace or in, at the grocery store or anywhere else, you know, so all of those then you add in what we talked about earlier, which is these hyper-processed food-like objects or even, you know, food that can, can be heavy in, in carbohydrate content, for example, that can then get associated with comfort where, you know, where people are feeding their wants and learning to feed their wants through marketing or whatever as compared to meeting their needs. And nobody's, you know, it's, it's hard to make a buck off of connection and true connection. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it it's much easier for a company to sell a product, to get somebody to buy something as compared to saying, hey, put your phone away and go talk to your family member or take your dog for a walk or go you know, hang out with your neighbor. It appears that a lot of this judgment that is levied against obese people, which then, you know, turns into a lot of shame it is, is built atop the apocrypha of, of willpower. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so maybe this is a bridge into kind of what typically doesn't work, um, to reframe a negative relationship with food because you, you unpack this, uh, with great eloquence in the book. Yes. So, this reminds me of the Lay's uh, saying, sure. bet you can't eat just one, which, which I didn't know until I did a little bit of research on the book, um, which was that that slogan came out back in 1963 
which was the same year that Weight Watchers was founded. You know, uh, I'm sure that's that's a perfect setup for a conspiracy theory, um, and I'm sure somebody will come up with one because that's just what people's brains do. But it was probably sure. a coincidence. Um, and that that slogan is so good that we we know it, and it's probably still used today. But the idea there is that we are you're setting up this perfect storm for the food industry that says, hey, we're going to learn better ways to engineer things to be addictive. And there, Michael Moss did a great expose. I think he wrote a whole book on this, uh, but his expose came out in the New York Times back in 2013 on, you know, on the, uh, I, think, I think it was like the extraordinary science of addicted junk food or something like that. Hmm. So that's there. And then you set up an industry that says, hey, let's use your willpower to help you lose weight. You know, so Weight Watchers was set up actually, I think by a, a, a woman in New York uh, who happened to be a housewife at the time and was struggling with her own weight management and it tried something through the, you know, the uh, New York city public health or something and it hadn't really worked. And so she sets up this, you know, Weight Watchers, which, you know, becomes the probably the largest, you know, weight loss um, program. And the idea is, you know, use your willpower. So they have these weekly meetings, they have weigh-ins, you get cheered if you lose some weight. It's eerily silent if you don't, um, you know, hence, you know, shame and guilt as a way to try to motivate people to, you know, just, just do it. But the, the paradox here, if you look at it from a neuroscience perspective, is that all of this, so uh, to put it gently, Willpower is more myth than muscle from a neuroscience standpoint. If you put it cynically, it's a perfect setup for a company to sell you stuff because they can say, you know, the formula is correct, right? In medical mm. school, I learned calories in, calories out, right? I, you know, it's a, the formula is correct. Mm. But, but the assumption is that there's something wrong with the person, not the formula. So if it's a diet plan, just follow our diet. If you can't follow the diet, sign up for another year, mm. you know, because it's your fault. And so there's more guilt, more shame. So, so that's what, that's, that's what we're fighting against as people. Yeah. And the bottom line there is it's really that we haven't looked at it from a neuroscience standpoint and ask, well, how does the brain actually work? And is willpower part of the equation? And the short answer is no, willpower is not even in the equation for behavior change from mice to humans. It's not there. So mm. neuroscientists don't waste their time with this concept of willpower. Hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting because I, I think that it violates some basic instinct that many people have when they look at folks that that might be struggling with their weight, and, and the judgment is like, "Oh, well, they're just lazy, right? They're yep. they're not really like applying. They're not disciplined, um, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence for that on a neuroscience basis." Right. And so I want to highlight that for anybody out there who thinks there's something wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with you. It's not that you need more willpower. I would suggest, you know, just take a little time to get to know how your brain works and you're going to be able to leverage your brain much better than beating yourself up over failing yet again with willpower. Yeah. And you give a number of examples in the book about how trying to kind of self-impose discipline, you know, tends to end up with not being particularly profitable. So, you know, you talk about like the abstinence violation effect, and there's a few other ones that I found kind of interesting sort of 
denial increases desire and a few other ones. So can you talk about some of those myths? Yeah. So let's start with the simple one that I'm sure most people have heard where it's like, you know, what we resist persists or, you know, the denial increases desire. And so the idea is it's probably started whenever we were a kid and our parents said we couldn't have something. What did we want? Whatever they said we couldn't have. <laughs> so, yeah. so our brains say, Ooh, uh, I, I, now I really want that. Uh, so that, you know, we can see how problematic that is. And then on top of that, when we try to deny ourselves something, it's kind of like the, the water is building up behind the dam and eventually that dam is going to burst. And this is Alan Marlat coined the term, the abstinence violation effect, I think back in the 1980s, and he was an addiction researcher. And the idea was that when somebody kind of forces themselves not to partake in whatever the substance is, whether it's cigarettes or alcohol or whatever, it doesn't matter. As soon as they're, they can't take it anymore, you know, it, my patients call it the efforts. <laughs> they're yeah. like, yeah. screw it. I'm going to go ahead and I'm not only going to smoke one cigarette, you know, they're back to a pack a day in, in no time where they're going to go on a bender uh, with alcohol or, or some other substance. And so, you know, that our brain says, I haven't had it for so long. I want even more of it, even though that might not actually <laughs> feel any better, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, yeah. but that's what our brains do. They say, I'm going to, I'm going to do it all. The, um, there's a movie. Have you seen the movie Chocolate? Uh, old yes, movie. yes, yeah. yes. It was, I, I, I have to see it again. Cause I remember thinking that it was wonderful. Oh, so good. So good. So many great. It was just beautifully written. Johnny Depp, um, Juliet, oh, was it uh, Binochet? I probably got her last oh, name. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, right. Um, Jeanette, uh, or Binoche. Uh, there, I think so. Yeah, something like right, that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Sure. So anyway, yeah. It, the premise is that this movie is, um, is set in a small French town during the time of Lent. And in the North, uh, with the North Wind, this woman, who's, uh, I think her name is Vivienne in the movie, flies in and she's got this red cape. She's signifying the devil, temptation, right? And, there, mm. and, and the pious mayor uh, signifies willpower and goes through all Lent trying to deny himself of you know, all, the, all the pleasures during Lent to show how you know, strong he can be. At the end of the movie, uh, spoiler alert for somebody that just really wants to watch this. I don't think it's going to spoil <laughs> the movie. He goes in to to basically destroy. So she sets up a chocolatier, if I've pronounced that correctly. And she's selling chocolate. And all the townspeople, they're like, wow, chocolate. And the, the, the mayor's like, come on, that's evil. And so at the end of Lent, he goes in to, you know, to destroy all this beautiful chocolate she's made and this little splash of chocolate lands in his mouth. And like, he goes nuts and just starts, you know, abstinence violation effects galore yeah. where he goes nuts and just starts eating and eating. He passes out after eating so much chocolate in the morning of Easter or whatever, the young priest in training walks down the street and like wide eyed and sees this guy passed out <laughs> in, in the chocolate display, <laughs> you know, like just covered in chocolate. But that's, that's the abstinence violation effect, you know, to a T. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose you, you don't need to look too much farther than the Catholic clergy for <laughs> proof that denial increases desire. Um, but in any case, I, I love those French movies where it, it seemingly nothing happens, you know, for, for 90 minutes, but you're just lulled into the, the countryside. Mm. Um, I have a little special place in my heart as a Francophile. So um, 
I think the other thing that you addressed that, that I found interesting under the kind of category of things that don't tend to work is uh, this kind of world of biometrics. So, and, and this is an interesting um, time for this because there are increasingly like commercially available, uh, you know, aura rings. I, I actually wear a continuous glucose monitor and all these kinds mm -hmm. of things um, that people can, you know, and there's this kind of emerging term known as orthorexia, mm -hmm. um, this kind of unhealthy obsession with health and food. Um, so why Note the are, irony there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your obsession with being healthy is such an obsession that it's unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'd be surprised how many people I know that, that fall into that category. Um, and, you know, my, my kids often accuse me of that sometimes. So, um, you know, why is focusing on particular measurements might why is that tendency might not take you to the promised land here? Well, and, and this isn't to say that measurement is inherently bad. I, I think the analogy here is that, you know, our smartphones are a, are a tool and it's, if we learn to use them wisely, then they can be very helpful. I, I cannot navigate the streets of Boston without my phone. It's just a mess, you know? And so very helpful. On the other hand, I could be addicted to my phone, you know, and constantly checking social media or whatever. And I think the same is true with these biometrics. So right now, and they will get better, but the, the inherent concern is still there. So one, if we're just doing simple things like tracking our calories or tracking our food intake, it's hard to be accurate. And it's also hard. There's no one size fits all. We're very individual people, you know, our needs are caloric. Um, burn, all these things are, are totally individual and they can even vary from day to day based on what our activity is or our environment is. So we, we try to mush everybody into a single box and say, oh, you need this number of calories, you need this number of, you know, if you break it down. And, and so that one, that's a problem. Two, the other concern is it's hard to track, you know, it's like, oh, here's the food label and I could scan it or whatever, but it's, these things still aren't great at making, being, doing a perfect estimate of what that calorie is. So even the tracking part is problematic. It'll get better, but it's still problematic. So then you add to that, and this is the biggest problem, which is we're learning to divorce ourselves from ourselves instead of listening to the wisdom of our bodies that have evolved for such a long time to tell us exactly what we need. We're suddenly saying, I don't believe you. My calorie counter says I can eat <laughs> this much more. And, and the body's saying, yeah, I'm actually not hungry right now. You know, and so then we start to cross our wires in this service of being healthy, but with the results of being unhealthy. You know, it's funny that, like, I, I was wearing an aura ring. I was suffering from chronic insomnia for, for many years. And uh, I changed a bunch of protocols and, and got it under control. But, you know, there was a time there where I would wake up and I would rely on the app to tell me whether or not I got a good night's sleep, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I started listening to Alan Watts. He has this kind of, like, little parable about, like, how we, you know, 
always confuse the symbol of things for the actual underlying reality. So yeah. we confuse the, the menu with the food or the map with the actual territory itself. And I was confusing, you know, my app readout with actually how I truly felt in my body. And, um, and you know, you actually do, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I, I wrote a little bit about this uh, with my wife in in the book because uh, she at times has gotten addicted to tracking stuff, and um, she has a, a watch now that uh, we both have watches that do a surprisingly good job of differentiating different sleep cycles. And so it used to be, you know, we wake up in the morning, we say good morning, give each other a kiss. Now it's wake up. And the first thing she says is what was your sleep score? And then we get the kiss, you know? And so it's yeah. like, but it's, it's a comp not necessarily competition with me, but like with herself. Cause she like, she got a 99 the other day. I'm like, Oh God, she's never going to beat that. Right. But it's like, yeah. <laughs> you know? but this just highlights, right. you know, how we can get so, and, and I'm like, well, how do you feel? Right. <laughs> but my sleep score said this. Well, how do you feel? Do you feel rested? <laughs> You know, right, right. I think, and you point to this in the book is that it gives us this feeling, if a false one, of control, mm -hmm. right? So we like, we like that. We like, we there. There's a tendency to think like, well, what I can measure, I can improve, yeah. right? You know, yeah. um, and uh, and and it separates us, as you say, kind of from really uh, the process of being alive of this of this organism and its vacillations and fluctuations and you know you you actually in the book um and this can maybe bridge us into kind of some of the solutions here is you know you you do a wonderful um kind of body scan meditation right mm -hmm. um as a way to become uh, you know more just aware of how we're feeling so can you what is that for people that are are, are unfamiliar with that yeah. Well, and this is kind of set up to help with, you know, anybody that gets stuck in this metric. And I love this. I teach this in one of my courses at Brown, which is uh, there's a phenomenon called the Goodhart's law. I mentioned in the book briefly, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to become, be a good measure. And the idea is that we, we distance ourselves from our bodies. And even, you know, James Joyce wrote about this in a short story where he said one of them called, uh, a painful case where a guy named Mr. Duffy and he says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. And the idea <laughs> is, and this is back in 1914 that he wrote this story, right? So it's not just with the modern metrics that we have and, and the biometrics that we can lash to ourselves, but this is something that's that we as humans have tended to do for a long time. So if we are not living in our bodies, you know, if we're distancing ourselves from our bodies, the first step, one of the first steps is to, kind of reconnect with our bodies. And the body scan is a practice that was popularized by a, I think he was born in India, uh, SN Goenka, um, mm -hmm. who was a business, actually a prominent business person who had these chronic headaches, if I remember correctly. And he went to this Burmese teacher, Uba Ken, this is back in the forties, uh, fifties, something like that. And um, you learned to meditate to work with his headaches, and then he developed these this very 
standardized meditation practice that's called Vipassana, which literally means uh, seeing clearly based on these teachings. And he's famous because he has this, he has, he has these 10 day retreats that are very standardized that you can find anywhere in the world. I actually took one in Kathmandu back when I was in medical school and you can go on retreat and you can do what he calls the body sweep or in Western terminology, John Kabat-Zinn calls it the body scan where we're basically scanning, bringing awareness to, as we scan from the head to the toes or toes to the head. And we're just noticing physical sensations and being curious about them. And it, that simple practice is a way to kind of re-engage and reconnect with our actual physical sensations from moment to moment. It also serves many other purposes, but the basic premise is that it just starts us in the process of kind of learning what our body feels like from moment to moment. Hmm. Yeah. Are, are there specific physical cues? And uh, I asked this question in relation to that body scan, um, kind of self-experiment, are there physical cues that help us delineate between kind of emotional hunger and, and biological hunger? Like, for example, like, does your stomach grumble, you know, when you're uh, emotionally drawn to food? Yeah, that's a good question. And there, so the short answer is there's a lot of overlap between homeostatic and hedonic hunger. So if you think of the Venn diagram, there's probably more, more intersection between those cir two circles than there is non-intersection. So stomach grumbling is a good example because that's one where unless we have a extremely strongly conditioned response to a certain food, that's one that is generally reserved for homeostatic hunger, for actual physiologic hunger. Whereas things like Restlessness, restlessness could be, is highly overlapping between the two. Lack of concentration could simply be that we're distracted by something or it could be that we're actually hungry. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of overlap that makes it really challenging to tell the difference between homeostatic and hedonic hunger. Fortunately, there are some ways that we can weight, you know, at, um, we can weight the different variables, you know, so it's like, if we've just eaten and we're feeling restless it's, and we've eaten enough, it's probably not because we're hungry. <laughs> Whereas if it's been six hours, so we can, we can do things to give preference to the signals that we're starting to identify and say, okay, that lack of concentration, well, you know, if I haven't eaten in forever, I'm going to make that higher likelihood that that's actually homeostatic hunger, especially if my stomach's grumbling and there are other signs that go along with it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's, uh, you've laid out a, a 21 day program in the book and, and it, uh, you do that, um, with a grain of salt because you also, <laughs> yes. you also, you also sort of tear down the 21 day myth while you're also <laughs> doing it, which is, a. a I find to be honest and humble. Um, but let's, let's get into some of the primary pillars, you, you know, of this program and how people should uh, um, execute around it. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm glad you, <laughs> you brought that forward because, you know, one of the, I get this so many times, how long does it take to break a bad habit or start a new habit? <laughs> and they're like, isn't it 21 days? And I say, well, a guy wrote a book in the 1960s. 
he was an, he was a plastic surgeon and he observed that it took his patients about three weeks to get used to their new nose jobs. If you want to extrapolate <laughs> that to your own experience, go for it. You know, the, the truth is it depends on the person. It depends on the habit. It depends on a lot of things. And it yeah. probably has very little to do with plastic surgery. So I just thought that I just wanted to highlight that because that is the prevalent myth on the internet around habit change. And there are actually very few studies that have looked into it very carefully. We actually did a study with, a, with we have this app called Eat Right Now, and we could actually measure the change in reward value. And we can bookmark mm. what that means for a minute, but we could actually mm. measure how many times somebody did a particular mindfulness exercise around overeating for reward value to change. And it was, it was about 10 to 15 times. Now, mm. some, it's not like somebody's going to overeat 10 times in one day. So usually that's spread out over time, but it does highlight that we can change a habit pretty quickly as long as we pay attention. But let's footnote that because the, the general premise or the general arc of change that we've seen, we've done research over a decade now with this, whether it's smoking or cigarettes, um, cigarettes, eating, or even anxiety, uh, we found that there's this three-step process that seems to be pretty consistent with habits in general. So the first step is just identifying what the behavior is. You, you can map out the entire loop, what's the trigger, the behavior, and the result, or you can even just focus on the behavior with eating, you know, am I eating because I'm hungry? Am I eating because I'm bored? I'm stressed. I'm lonely. I'm anxious. You know, there could be all of these hedonic things that trigger us to eat. And so we have to first identify, you know, I like just asking the question, why am I eating? Right. Mm -hmm. And feeling into our experience. And sometimes that can take a little while to get reconnected with our bodies to see if we're actually hungry or not. And that's where things like the body scan come in. So that's the first step. And then the second step is where we're actually leveraging the strength of our reinforcement learning system. And instead of trying to use willpower, which isn't even in the equations for behavior change, we're starting to ask a simple question, which is, what am I getting from this? So why am I eating? Step one. Step two, what am I getting from this? And what that does is it leverages this orbitofrontal cortex that, that is that is determining how rewarding a behavior is. And I think of that as set and forget. When you set a habit, you forget about the, how rewarding it is. You just do it because you're going to automatically, well, that's what the definition of a habit is. You do something automatically. So we have to bring that into conscious awareness and then reassess how rewarding it is right now. And so if we bring that into conscious awareness, three things can happen. One is it can be more rewarding than we have set that reward value at. It's called the positive prediction error. It can be less rewarding or it can be the same. If it's the same, we don't change. If it's more rewarding, we're going to do it more. If it's less rewarding, we're going to do it less. Um, concrete example, and this is a learning process, right? So let's say there's a new bakery that opens up in my neighborhood. I don't know how good their chocolate cake is. So if I eat their chocolate cake and it's the best cake I've ever had, positive prediction error, I learned good bakery, right? Go back here. If it sucks, <laughs> I'm like, man, they got to get their act together. I'm not coming back here. I've also learned, right? And so both ways I've, um, I've actually learned. And if I don't pay attention when I'm eating the cake, I haven't learned anything. Hmm. Uh, so that, that's the process of change is paying attention when we're doing a behavior. And the simple question that we ask ourselves is, what am I getting from this? Not thinking I shouldn't eat three pieces of cake, but feeling 
what's it like when I eat that third piece of cake versus the second versus the first, especially when we're not hungry, right? And that's what we found when we did this study, 10 to 15 times of somebody overeating, they realize pretty quickly that it doesn't feel good. Their body is telling them everything that they need to know. They don't need to check their app. They don't need to track their calories. Their body's saying, dude, did you really have to eat that third piece of cake? Seriously? Like, cause I'm, there's a rock in my stomach right now. And I think that's cake rock. So in order to undercut the appeal of negative behaviors, it seems like the, the step before that is to cultivate that space, that, that attention really to be able to ask some of the questions of like, you know, why am I doing this? How do I actually feel? Um, and, uh, in a way is the, is the reformation of habits sort of, um, you know, putting more weight uh, on the top down side of the tug of war, you know, like, you know, we have these bottom up behaviors that are sometimes, as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, they're sometimes very adaptive, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm um, very helpful. Um, sometimes not sometimes very maladaptive yet. They're still kind of bottom up. They're involuntary because of all of the reasons why we we've discussed. And is, is some of this really being able to sort of leverage our, our prefrontal cortex or neomammalian capabilities to essentially put pressure, top-down pressure on bottom-up behaviors such that, you know, our voluntary behaviors eventually become involuntary? I, I would say no and yes. So I'm going to start with a no. <laughs> and there's, you know, I don't know what the anatomy of the Vulcan brain is, but for, I would say yes, for sure with Mr. Spock. Because he basically had all prefrontal cortex, right? His famous line was highly illogical captain uh, in Star <laughs> Trek, right? And so Mr. Spock could just logic himself out of anything. And, and I love Star Trek in many ways, but one was that Mr. Spock was the antithesis to Captain Kirk, who was emotional, right? And so, you know, this is where Danny Kahneman's, you know, famous book, you know, thinking fast and slow comes from is this idea that we've got these two brain systems that are fighting with each other and it's the emotional versus the logical. And it turns out that the logical, while very logical is extremely weak compared to the emotional. And so it's, it, you know, for example, it's the prefrontal cortex is the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed or when we're anxious or when we're hungry you know, or you bring, you know, that's that hangry um, saying when we're hungry and angry, or we get angry because we're hungry, you know, and so we do these habitual things when we can't rely on our prefrontal cortex. So Mr. Spock came on the rest of us, I would say leverage the lower. And what I mean by that is, we have this extremely well evolved, very strong uh, emotional and habit system. And the idea is we need to bring it into, we need to learn how to train it. And if we can learn how to train it, it becomes the new habit. And the way mm -hmm. to train it is not by trying to force ourselves or do the mental push-ups or the shoulds, but it's really through just bringing awareness on board. And that's what that second mm -hmm. step is all about. If you look at, you know, Rescorla and Wagner were these two scientists in the 1970s that, that came up with this formula that my lab still uses today for habit change. And the idea is you bring awareness in, you see if something's rewarding, 
If it is, you're going to keep doing it. If it's not, you're going to stop or you're going to become disenchanted. None of that requires willpower. The only training piece that's needed is awareness. You just have to pay attention as you do it. And you can also reflect back on times when you did it in the past. You don't even have to do it again if you've done it enough where you can reflect back and kind of feel into what it was like, what the result was in the past. That's why I like the simple question, what did I get from this? And not, not in a thinking way, like I shouldn't have eaten those 1400 right. calories. It was, what did my stomach tell me? Does the disruption of context stability play a role in kind of unwinding habits? And I mean, do you have to go to the new bakery? Do you have to force yourself to go to the new bakery? I mean, oftentimes, you know, to break habits related to drugs and alcohol, for example, people and food, but people are often kind of sent off to somewhere mm -hmm. to essentially break context. Is that an a crucial element of it or, or maybe not really i've so it's not crucial because i've seen tons of people do it without changing context to that tends to be a privileged thing so only a certain number of people can actually go out of context you know get childcare, have their job give them leave and all mm -hmm. those things and the other piece there is that i've seen this i can't tell you how many times with my patients with addiction they go into rehab they, they're like, oh, great. I don't have any cravings. Well, their brain's pretty smart. Their brain's like, there are no drugs here. There's no alcohol here. I'm not going to bother craving. But guess what? As soon as you get out, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to crush yeah. you. I remember a guy, this is on a residency. There was a case of a guy who'd been in a therapeutic community for a year and a half. And as soon as he got on the train home, he was calling his dealer. A year and a half. So... Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes it can be helpful for somebody just to break, if they feel completely out of control, you know, it's, it, you know, you, they just got to hit the reset button somehow and maybe rehab is helpful. Some, some type of a context shift for a little bit isn't helpful, but you critically, that's not going to work unless you learn how to work with your brain. Otherwise it's just going to be a, a temporary measure. And then you're going to wonder why you failed when you went back to your old context. Well, mm. the system is really failing you because they're not training you to work with your brain. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we touched a little bit on mindfulness. Um, and uh, how, how, how would you define mindfulness as it pertains to the action of eating? So, we, you know, we, we hear a lot about mindful eating. Um, mm -hmm. What is that according to Chad Brewer? Well, there are a lot of conceptions around mindful eating where it's like, you know, and this goes, let's, maybe we can talk about the raisin exercise because uh, that's yeah. this famous thing with mindfulness-based stress reduction. You know, it's kind of a rite of passage for a lot of people where, you know, somebody's first introduced to the program on the first day, you know, they pull out this object and they're like, oh, you know, the teacher's like, oh, I'm going to put something in your hand you know, just hold on to it. You know, they go around the circle and they, it's like the sacred object and it's a raisin, right? And you're supposed to hold this raisin and then you're supposed to like look at the raisin and listen to the raisin and, you know, smell the raisin and do all these things, you know, and then you slowly eat the raisin. And the idea is you take 30 minutes to, you know, to kind of break the cycle of what most of us typically do, which is just to eat raisins by the handful. 
And the whole idea there is like, oh, if you slow down and you pay attention, you can actually notice things. Shocker. <laughs> when you pay attention, you notice things. So that's kind of the um, the stereotype when people want to make fun of MBSR programs. They're like, oh, did you do the raisin exercise? Did you take 45 minutes or an hour? You know, well, in reality, I think of mindful eating as just paying attention as we eat. Many people, including myself, don't have time to spend 45 minutes eating a single carrot or a cashew or whatever, but we can pay attention when we eat. And so as long as we have at least 15 minutes, which is the time it takes for our body to kind of register fullness, uh, you know, and, uh, it's, you know, we can pay attention as we eat. And so we can, we can really just, you know, what's it taste like? What's it smell like? What's it, you know, we can enjoy the food and we can see what we prefer, what we don't prefer. And so the big thing is just putting away distractions. You know, we're not eating while we're watching a television or a YouTube video or checking our email or scrolling through social media because we're not actually registering what we're eating, how much we're eating, et cetera. But it's really that simple. It's like uh, pay attention as you eat and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's also an, an argument just for good digestion and, and metabolism of your food to be paying attention. I mean, if you're essentially, you know, staring at the invective of Facebook, um, you know, which is designed algorithmically to essentially trigger your negativity bias and, and activate your sympathetic system, you know, such that all the blood is flowing away from your stomach <laughs> when it wouldn't be, when, you know, energy should be focused on digestion, uh, it's probably not the best way to get the, the most out of your food. Um, but, um, but you, you actually brought up, um, in the book, an interesting instance, I think it maybe surfaced on a discussion group or something where, you know, someone asked the question, well, like, what if I'm in a social situation and I'm super engrossed in the conversation and, you know, and I'm like, can I still eat socially, uh, and be involved in a conversation, but also eat mindfully because how am I going to pay attention to like every contour of the race, right. <laughs> you, know, right. you know, if I'm trying to have a, a conversation with Judd. Right. And so the, I'm glad you bring that forward. Cause I see this so often and the short answer is it's hard to do two things at the same time. And the, the longer answer is, you know, how many of us spend how many of our days in social situations eating? It's a lot. It's a lot of time. So we can learn to try to balance those things where it's, you know, if we tend to overeat, we can pay attention and check in with ourselves before we get the food. Like, how hungry am I? What was it like when I ate this much last time? You know, can we, if we, if we know we're not going to pay careful attention as we eat, cause we're going to be really engrossed in conversation, we can pay attention beforehand. We can also pay attention afterwards and ask, well, what did I get when I ate that much or that type of food? And we can still learn from that because after, you know, at the end of the night, we can, how well am I sleeping? How's my stomach feel? All of that can be good information. And we can also, there are always going to be lulls in conversation. So we can spend time like engrossed in conversation. And then we can take a minute to, and even say it to our you know, compatriots and say, Hey, you know, this food looks really good. I, I just give me a minute to like actually taste this and enjoy it. Nobody's going to be like, no, don't enjoy your food. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I think there's also kind of modern forms of, of grace. You know, I'm, I'm not an Abrahamic guy, but um, so you're not going to find a lot of grace at our table in, in the classic sense. But we do have a ritual called Rosebud Thorn. I have three daughters and they're all mm -hmm. home now for, for break. And, you know, at dinner time, you know, we, we talk about the rose, the bud and the thorn of our day, uh, mm -hmm. kind of metaphorically. And that's kind of our form of grace where, you know, we just settle and we listen and we come become kind of aware, you know, all the phones disappear, you know, all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, all, all the other forms of distraction kind of just disappear. And, you know, it's a way of, of honestly just kind of quieting the body um, and paying attention. And, you know, I won't say that we don't like woof down in the enchiladas from time to time, but... <laughs> You know, but we do appreciate it and, um, and, you know, and, and, you know, we take our time, but, you know, I think that, um, I think, you know, you do a good job at kind of pointing to some of the myths of mindful eating, mm. um, in the book where, you know, mindful eating doesn't have to be slow eating. It doesn't have to happen by yourself. It doesn't mm. have to be this kind of, you know, dirge. Uh, you know, this chore, <laughs> the, yeah. which I think mindfulness often gets put in that category. You know, uh, Alan Watts has this kind of idea of like, you know, meditation should just be grooving with the present, you know, grooving <laughs> with the present moment. This, this is about having fun right here, right now. Um, but it often gets kind of couched in the kind of parentheses of, you know, a, a chore. Yeah, so, um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So maybe we can pivot and talk a little bit about kindness, um, because this is one of the more unexpected pieces of the book. I think, you know, where, okay, uh, you know, we're going to apply some of these neuroscience principles. We're going to, you know, become more mindful uh, about our food. And now, but then this other ingredient of kindness, um, seems to be a very novel concept. So what, what role does kindness play in the equation here? Yeah. And it, it, it kindness in itself is, is not novel per se, right? So if you look at any spiritual tradition, right? And I know you're not saying it that way, um, yeah. but when it comes to ourselves, especially in the Western world, I think it is a very foreign concept, you know, cause we think, you just got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You got to be mean to yourself. You got to, you know, judging yourself is the way to get stuff done. And this goes, you know, goes back to our brains where our brains love to make correlations and they assume causation or causality when there is none. So correlation does not equal causation. And so the idea is, well, when we're, when we're, something isn't going well for us, if we just tell ourselves to do better next time, or we beat ourselves up or we self-deprecate, we associate that with doing better or at least doing something. And the research hasn't shown that that actually works. It can actually just get us stuck in self-judgment habit loops. So here with kindness, I think of it as, so, you know, if we think of these three steps, you know, what's the behavior first step? Uh, what's the result, right? That's the second step. What am I getting from this? And the third step is like, what's better? So I think of this as finding the bigger, better offer. And so if we spend our lives judging ourselves and then, you know, for eating amount or type of food that we do or not being a certain way, 
that actually can just create more shame and guilt, which then feeds these cycles of judgment. And so if we simply ask ourselves, well, what feels better, judging myself or being kind to myself, then kindness wins every time. We've even done studies on this. Uh, we haven't published these yet, but basically, you know, it's pretty universal that our brains prefer kindness over self-judgment or, you know, anxiety or, you know, being mean to ourselves. So it's in there and we can simply feel into it and using that comparison can help us start to develop kindness as its own new habit as a bigger, better offer, because our brain, given the choice, it's going to start choosing kindness over meanness because it just, it mm. feels better. So it's a great way to approach our habits with regard to eating. And also as a bonus, it can become a new way of approaching life. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's a meditation practice known as Metta. Of course, mm -hmm. you're very familiar with it. It's generally associated with this notion of sending loving kindness externally, you know, to, as an act of compassion to assuage suffering. But, but is there a practice, um, uh, a Metta practice that's more focused around sending kindness to yourself? It, it depends on, so there are a number of ways that this has been taught in the commentaries. But if you go back to the Buddhist teachings, the description of metta is, is around a mother holding her only child. Hmm. And it, so I think the commentaries tend to make it sound more of a dualistic thing. Like, I'm going to send kindness to you. Maybe I'll send kindness to myself, you know, this type of thing. But it, it if you look at those, they're kind of phrases that help us warm up to the feeling of kindness. But really, if you look at the at the early teachings, and I'm not a scholar, but this is just how I understand them, is that they're really about awakening that feeling of that open-heartedness. And that mm -hmm. open-heartedness is non-dual. It's, it's not about us being open-hearted to somebody else. It's not about us being open-hearted to ourselves because that's still dualistic. It's just about feeling into the feeling of open-heartedness, which then breaks down those dualistic boundaries of us versus us, us versus others, us versus the world. And it's just resting in that awareness of openness. And so here I think of it as, you know, if you really go back to the core teachings, at least the way I understand them, it, the commentaries can help us start to awaken those qualities of experience, but they are again, can become fingers pointing at the moon as compared to the experience itself. So once we, we find that path to awaken our hearts and open our hearts, uh, then it's there, you know, and it's, it's really about that, that feeling, that experience as compared to a, a more of a cognitive process. Hmm. Yeah. So interesting. Uh, I'm sort of tempted here to go down the Buddhist wormhole. Um, but, you know, if you look at kind of these experiences that, that, that seem to be kind of at the apogee of, of what it is to be alive, you know, um, you know, joy and compassion, you know, this notion, Buddhist notion of mudita, for example, like joy simply for someone else's joy, mm -hmm. but kind of above that, a, a non-dual form of joy um, that is just joy for, for the sake of joy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, or, or, you know, the, the identification of someone else's suffering as your own 
this notion of like karuna or compassion that that it isn't just it it isn't dual in the sense anymore between it's like someone else's suffering and your suffering or what it's just a feeling of of wanting to relieve suffering kind of generally and it 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 is an experience that that is mystical i suppose that it it must be felt and not cogitated (laughs) well i would say let's take both of those if i would love you know just even for a minute so if you look yeah. at the experience of joy and you approach it from a, you know, if I put my neuroscience hat on, we can compare, um, you know, what's the near enemy of, of joy? Is it uh, envy? I think if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. they talk about things that are, that are close to these immeasurables, but aren't them. And they can be, right. they can be um, false idols, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And so if I remember that correctly, I think it's envy, jealousy, maybe something like that. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is we can compare like if somebody's something great happened to somebody, if our reaction is that we're envious, we can notice what that feels like. And that tends to close us down. I want that. Right. So there's a wanting quality that comes into that. It makes it, and there's a dualistic perspective. They have it. I don't have it. I want it. When you look at the, and we can ask ourselves, how does it feel when I'm envious? Well, it feels lacking because I don't have it. Whereas yeah. if, if we just feel into the quality of joy, like somebody's joyful, I'm just doing this right now. It's like, oh, oh it feels so good. Yeah. Like when somebody's yeah. just like so joyful and you're like, oh my God, and it's contagious, right? It's, it's like, even now just remembering, I'm like, oh. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't even matter what it is. It's like so contagious. And it's interesting. They call these four immeasurables, right? Because they, they build on themselves. They're, they're, they're not limiting. There's no zero sum. It's actually, it becomes bigger and bigger the more we tap into it. So then we can ask, which one feels better to be envious or just bask in the joy? It's a no brainer. To do the same yeah. thing with compassion. You know, I think of this as, and I do a lot of work with helping physicians not burn out. And what first thing I work with is like empathy versus compassion. So empathy in, in a nutshell, like putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, it's, it's feels closed down because somebody's suffering. Now you're suffering. Boy, that sucks for everyone. Whereas if you don't take that suffering personally, but you notice the fact that someone is suffering, you can feel into the pain. And thankfully, as humans, our natural response, maybe unless we're a sociopath, is like, oh, there's suffering here. And then we want to help. But if it's not about us protecting ourselves from that pain, then we can open to it because there's nobody to protect. And we move into this non-dual space that feels better than empathy, than getting sucked into the pain. So even Mm -hmm. from a neuroscience standpoint, it's beautiful. It, It works beautifully with the experience, whether it's whether it's Medita or Karuna or, you know, whether it's uh, joy or compassion, it, our brains are just wired this way. It's so amazing. Yeah. And, and, you know, this can play itself out just on the most anodyne, quotidian, Instagram-y kind of way. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, how many times do you essentially project your own unfulfilled potential onto someone else, you know, through their accomplishments. So, okay, someone now has put out a bestseller and they're trumpeting it all, all over some <laughs> Instagram post. And, you know, what, what is your response in witness of that? Is, is that envy? 
you know, mm-hmm. or is that just like, oh my God, that's so great. I'm so yeah. joyful and happy for that person. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and then you can ask yourself, what served me? Like, what did I get out of this? Totally. Um, and um, and it, it is, uh, it is, can be quite enlightening. To, to go use a Buddhist analogy that I love, um, this, and maybe it's in other traditions as well, it's kind of like, if you pick up a hot coal and you try to throw it at somebody, even if you hit them, you're still getting burned. And that's right. what envy is. You know, it's like we're burning ourselves or the Confucius said, you know, if, if you go out on the journey of, of revenge, dig two graves or something like that. Right. So the, the <laughs> whole good. idea is that all of those things just create suffering for ourselves, regardless of how it affects the person, you know, that we're sending the dagger eye look at, you know, for getting that bestseller mm. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I will certainly be joyful when your book is a bestseller. How's that? Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, The Hunger Habit, it, it, it's out, you know, at the end of January, right around the time of the airing of the show. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. And, and what else do you have um, going on? Because I, I know from your book, you're mindful and also move fast. Um, so <laughs> I can't imagine, uh, I can imagine your life is, is quite full um, when you get back to Brown, et cetera. Well, certainly, you know, spring semester will be starting. Uh, but one thing we've been doing is we've just started a nonprofit for addiction treatment where we're bringing together some of the digital therapeutics and the neuroscience that I've been working on the last couple of decades. Uh, to train peer support specialists and really help support the addiction community. You know, as an addiction psychiatrist, I've I've witnessed, you know, the the opioid epidemic that is still ongoing and raging, and we're getting other epidemics on top of it. So uh, doing a lot of work in the nonprofit space, or non, if, for anybody that's interested, the nonprofit's called MindShift Recovery. And the, I think the mm-hmm. website's just mindshiftrecovery.org. So that's, that's a place where I'm spending a lot of time just trying to, trying to be of service. Beautiful. Yeah. I have a lot of friends in the recovery space, uh, that are, you know, bridging, uh, recovery from addiction with kind of somatic practices, mm-hmm. um, a lot of yoga and movement, et cetera. Um, so maybe we can connect some, some of those dots there. I'd like that. And, um, if you're ever in uh, the warm climes of Southern California, you have a, a kooky retreat center to hang out at with uh, compost and bees and chickens and the rest of it. So I, I hope to see you there. I would love that. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, I hope you can catch a few waves in the meantime. I know you're, uh, I, I'm sure this surfing is part of your mindfulness practice. I, I'm not a surfer, but everyone who I know who is, that that's always the the equation there. It is definitely a mindfulness practice, and to be, you know, fully transparent and honest, it can be very addictive. You never know when you're going to catch the <laughs> next wave or how it's go- how good it's going to be. So it's a it's a good practice with regard to working with uh, craving as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm and sure enjoy, right? It's like if I'm as stoked about somebody else catching a wave that I didn't catch, game on. There you go. The, the Brahma Vihara as, as a uh, set atop of, uh, surfing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Dr. Judd Brewer, it's been an absolute treat. I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about. So if you're uh, good with it, we can just say to be continued and, um, 
and the hunger habit. So happy to to uh, support it. Where where can people find you and keep abreast of your work? I'm on Instagram uh, at dr. Jud. Dr. Judd also have a Dr. Judd website, drjud.com. Uh, those are probably the two places where they can get more information and got a bunch of free resources on the website uh, there as well. So yeah, probably a good place. Great. Great. All right. Thanks for all your work and I'll see you soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Judd Brewer. His new book, The Hunger Habit, is available January 28th, 2024. Now, if you enjoy this show and would like to receive 30 days of free all-access to Commune membership, well, write us a damn review. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap Write a Review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your glowing, glittering, glamorous review to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top thought leaders and doctors and mystics and sages, all free for 30 days. And while you're there, get subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly any old time with questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive ilk at Jeff K at onecommune.com. Lastly, and not leastly, I would like to thank the folks who make the show possible week over week, including Jacob Love, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Cooper Mall, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, my man, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. Ka-ka. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs> <laughs>